So we've talked a bunch on the podcast about how Star Trek handles relationships, and normally it's poorly. Um, mm-hmm. But I'd say this week we saw an actual... I, 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 I have to give this show credit because we saw actually a very sweet relationship between, you know, between two characters who are maybe not long-term suited for each other, maybe not actually going to make it, but maybe are just you know, lonely enough and just need to reach out to somebody and are just kind of there. And it's a very tragic and sad thing. And I'm, of course, talking about uh, Bilby and O'Brien because they had probably the best romantic relationship in the franchise. I thought you were talking about O'Brien and Chester the Cat. Aw. Who was great. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't think you ever see him again. Apparently the cat's dead. Yeah, no, I really like this episode. Yeah, I was I, not I, expecting this to be this good. It, I know, liked it. They, uh, it, Iris Stephen Bear said that they had another actor in mind to play Bilby, and the actor unfortunately died. Oh. And he didn't feel like this character was as, or this actor was as well suited to the material as the actor that they wanted to cast. Now, I, I don't know. I, you know, that could be... Do you know who the actor was? I don't remember. Okay. I don't think it was anybody that was that famous. And they really wanted this to be a sort of O'Brien, Bilby, father, son, surrogate sort of storyline. And I think that what you see here is, because it's, it's an interesting episode for, for a lot of reasons, but... What always strikes me about it is how lonely Bilby is, as you say, and how he is really imbuing O'Brien with a lot of qualities that O'Brien is not giving to him because O'Brien is really... O'Brien plays this plays a lot of especially the early interactions fairly blankly. Yeah. And there's not much going on there. No, Bilby is because, you know, which as, you know, I, I guess my big question is why are they having... Out of everybody in Starfleet, O'Brien be the one who's doing this deep intelligence undercover operation. He has no undercover experience that we know of. You know, obviously— Only the ones with Keiko. Ugh. I mean, obviously he turns out to be the perfect one for the job in this. You know, everything goes well, but, you know— Well, it kind of does. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, You know, you have to just accept that, but— yeah, his strategy is – Bilby is obviously very someone who is kind of down on his luck. He is looking for somebody that he can trust. He's very – again, you, I can see where a show would have done this as a father-son thing, but to me it doesn't come off as a father and son. Like, I mean, there I, I say romance half-jokingly, but – I mean, there is a there is a scene when Bilby literally hires a prostitute for O'Brien. Yeah, if that is not a way, you know, if he's not literally hiring a surrogate to consummate his relationship with O'Brien, I mean, that that's what that scene read to me. That's what the two of them. Bilby seems almost in love with O'Brien through this. He's exactly what he wants in in a second, and. In a way, there's certain echoes of the dynamic that he has with Ramos in that relationship, too. Um, and also Bashir. Yeah, of course. I mean, because we've talked before about how O'Brien and Bashir really just want to make out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, that's a read that I I hadn't really thought about before, which is surprising because I am a huge fan of, of homosexuality. But... It makes sense, and yeah. I and I think that I mean it's it's homosocial in a very Eve Sedgwick epistemology of the closet kind of thing. There is one of the main points of that 
book and that, you know, strain of queer theory is that two men in love with the same women are really in love with each other. Mm -hmm. And the woman is the vessel by which they are allowed to consummate their relationship to each, you know, that kind of a thing. Obviously. Well, that's, that's really like the whole plot line of chasing Amy, for example, which if you would like to find out our thoughts on chasing Amy, go check out our (laughs) episode Trek about presents on chasing Amy. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that, you know, the thing about this episode that really always does strike me is again, Bilby is a character that we've seen a lot in television before. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like you said, he's a down on his luck. He is a gangster. Yeah, he's and, a he's a mid-level gangster. He's never going to be the top, but right. he has his he he's he runs his tiny neighborhood. Right. And and the thing about the character of Bilby is that I don't you know, like you said, I don't get a father-son read from this relationship. I I think that the dialogue is written obliquely enough that you can read it in a lot of different ways. And I think that, you know, maybe what Ira Stephen Bear was talking about there is that the the actor, yeah. um, you know, I, he did say something about the actor looking very much like Colmini. You know, he wouldn't really buy the yeah. actor who played Bilby as O'Brien's father. Okay. But I don't think that you need that relationship to, to work. And I actually think it's more interesting if it's not a, a rote father-son kind of thing. Yeah, again, and again, I could see this going explicitly into that direction, but I think... The two of them, and especially the actor playing Bilby, take it into a... Again, there's that one line he has towards the end when he says, you know, I knew you were too good to be true. I mean, his heart is broken, and, you know, he loves O'Brien, and he still, you know, tries to... And and he, frankly, loves O'Brien so much he's not even mad during the ending of it. No, he's not. He's he's more just heart... Again, he's heartbroken that, you know, he... This wasn't the case. And... Again, it gives it a very – that wouldn't have had, played the same way if it had been a father-son thing. No, I don't think it would have. It wouldn't have worked, and I think that – I mean because if you look at the, the, the beginning of the episode, for example, and you have O'Brien you know, sitting at the bar, and he, you know, Bilby says he's seen him there before. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, O'Brien ostensibly has been hanging out in this bar for a couple weeks, establishing an identity and establishing a cover. And you know he spikes uh, one of his little lieutenants, and you know that doesn't seem like a good thing. Hmm. Uh, he's got you know lightning strikes and things. He looks all bug eyed and it's crazy. It's nice to actually see one of those in use because we had that episode uh, with the woman who did have the right that implication. You know, the this is a simple investigation from yeah. last last month, last season. Yeah, the Orion Syndicate is much more is slowly become. They're they're establishing the Orion Syndicate slightly here. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that, but but um, yeah. before we get to that, I think that you know if you if you look at the way in which O'Brien and Bilby you know first meet, obviously O'Brien is engineering this meeting. Yes, it's it's almost a meet cute in a way. Yeah, and Bilby, I think you know O'Brien is. You say, okay, I don't know why they picked O'Brien for this either. Um, assumedly, it was just because they needed a Colmini episode yeah. and they hadn't had one in a while. And, you know, is this the strongest O'Brien episode ever? I think it's quite good. I, I like, think it's very different yeah. from what they usually give him. And and also, the way in which Colmini is playing O'Brien in this in this uh, episode is, is very striking because he's playing a version of himself that I think... It's not necessarily that he's constructing a whole new identity for himself, but it's more about O'Brien thinking about what his life would be like if he never got married to Keiko, if he never had children, if he didn't have a career that he was, you know, in love with, frankly, didn't have friends, didn't feel home at home somewhere. 
And so that's kind of where he's approaching this, I think. And then when Bilby sees him and O'Brien is very much, you know, because he is doing undercover work. Yeah. So he is obviously telling Bilby and, and you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, broadcasting to Bilby what Bilby wants to see. Yeah. And I think that O'Brien gets a read on Bilby pretty quickly. And also he's probably got some intelligence and stuff. Yeah. And again, whenever O'Brien answers fewer questions than he ordinarily would, I I, I generally tend to be a little snarky about Colmini's acting, but again, he does a very good job here. But again, he, yeah, he is playing a version of himself, but much less, much less fulfilled. And I don't know. I like it's a very subtle episode in a lot of ways. What I really like about it is how little is really said about Ramos and Bil- Bilby's relationship, but at the same time you, I guess you know everything you need to know about it. I in a lot of ways I think and again this is kind of going on the father-son theme and maybe the relationship feels so strong because they are father and son. They are lovers. They are brothers. You know, they they are they get a relationship that has a lot of different flavors to it. But this is probably how Ramos ended up meeting Bilby. You know, Bilby was a guy who was down on his luck, had a hard time getting a job, was just hanging out in a bar, getting drunk, and met up with this guy Ramos. And he turned out to be the right guy that Ramos needed. And then the two of them forged a very you know strong relationship based on trust and. You know, in a way, Bilby is seeing this happen from the other side. Yeah, and yeah. He wants this so badly again that he's willing to ignore every bit of reason and rationale in order to. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that this episode, you know, I want to talk more about Ramos and Bilby, but I, I think maybe this is a good a good time for us to to talk a little bit more about some of the world building that the episode does and specifically about the Orion Syndicate and the planets that are involved here because mm-hmm. they're the planet called Ferios, I believe. And, is you that know, the one that the main one they're on? I believe so. Yes. It's. I really liked, by the way, that the establishing shot at the beginning. It's very. It's very sort of Blade Runner. Yeah, but it looks really good. You know, it, and and that's kind of my question about it is you know so so you had problems with uh, uh you know kind of the introduction of the idea of the Orion Syndicate and where is this coming from and it's very sort of nebulous and this kind of stuff and I guess my question for you is you know does Honor Among Thieves do anything for that problem yeah. that you have. I feel like if this had been the episode that introduced the Orion Syndicate, maybe it would have been a lot clearer because after this episode, we know more or less what it is. It And it had been very clear that we're just going, it's the space mafia, sure. Right. Uh, here we find out a little more of the their procedures and the way they run and the kind of things they do. Um I don't know. In the in the episode it was mentioned was with Quark's connections with them and it just seemed to come out of nowhere. When the in simple investigation there were some connections to the syndicate as well. Um and those feel like they would have made more sense both of them if the if the syndicate had been established beforehand because we know of them as but, but but then again we need to know of the we need to believe that the syndicate is all powerful and dangerous and kind of scary, right? Um, when, you know, Bilby at the end says, oh, they're going to kill my family, they'll come after my family or whatever, we need to believe, and in this episode, certainly we do believe that the syndicate is going to be just as dangerous as the real life mafia would be. Sure. Um, I, 
And I guess certain of where Bilby goes in this episode gets a lot of its power from subverting that image of the syndicate that we've already had. So yes, maybe it, you know that ending works better when we've had two episodes to establish the syndicate as this scary criminal criminal organization. But at the same time, they've barely even really appeared in either episode. This is the first time we actually really see we actually see deal with that yeah well i there's a couple things that that i find i guess intriguing about the orion syndicate and 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 the first one of course is that we don't ever i mean well we haven't yet seen any actual orions in the orion that was my question you know those are the green people from the original series so so and we only really see them if i remember right you only see an orion in in the cage yeah right yeah i I think so yeah and and no there um in journey to babel if i'm remembering correctly the the there was an orion spy who was pretending to be an oh yeah but you know, it's one of those things that, again, this is something that Deep Space Nine does. It brings things back yeah. from the original series that, you know, TNG didn't really want to deal with or, or, or couldn't have dealt with. And so they, they want to expand that universe a little bit. You know, they've done that a lot with minor things. And so you get this idea of the Orion Syndicate. You get this idea that that perhaps the Orions are the power behind the Orion Syndicate, but they're letting, you know, other alien races do their dirty work for them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem like a great place. Farios also doesn't seem to me to be a Federation planet. No. And what Deep Space Nine, I think, is more comfortable in doing, especially in this episode, through the character of Bilby and also through the establishment of Farios, is that there are planets out there that, I mean, we know this even from the next generation, you know, the rape planet that, that yeah. Tasha Yar grew up on, for example, um, is an example of a planet where either the Federation never made it there or the Federation failed. This idea that the Federation is not perfect and the the idea that there are corners of the Federation or there are corners of the galaxy where there are humans living, because, you know, Bilby, I believe, is supposed to be a human. And, you know, uh, Ramos looks like a human as well. I didn't think Ramos was. He has a nose thing Oh, does he have a nose thing? Okay. Um, But it wasn't a nose that I was familiar with. Like, he is... Just intended to be just another species that doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of where I where I think about this is you know Deep Space Nine seems to be saying that there are people that you know because why is Bilby down on his luck? That that's kind yeah. of my question. I mean, he could just go move back to the Federation. I don't know, and I think it's a weird it's a weird thing. Yeah, I mean, it's. There is a sense of how much crime is enough to sustain what level of lifestyle to a degree. And, you know, you and I might say, well, we don't need to do crime to get a better lifestyle because... Well, you might say that. I, well, yeah. Um, you know, we can just move to the Federation, but, you know, he's also the kind of person who's very doting on his wife and children and... You know, maybe he just feels that in order to keep them in the mansion with all of the servants and the very nice things and, you know, the kids can go to any school they want, you know, kind of a thing. Maybe for whatever reason, he feels he's not able to do that within the Federation. Yeah, that could certainly be. And I think that the idea that there are... I mean, he could not be human and his species is not a Federation member. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and there are, there probably are human colonies that are not part of the Federation. I mean, we, we've seen the Maquis, for example, which are now wiped out, but still they were there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's all very nebulous and I don't think it's, you know, it's not something that 
is that important for figuring out in terms of the actual world building, but I think it's important more for what it says about what type of show this is and what its aims are and what it's willing to show, you know, because this is not something that TNG would ever show us, Yeah, you know, and this is a very different type of storytelling even than than TNG would do. Now, at this point, we're in the middle of the sixth season of, of, the, of Deep Space Nine. We've been talking about it for a while. This is not new, but it's more ammunition that the show is even getting a little bit not darker necessarily, but it is going down some roads that, it, you know, it perhaps, you know, I don't think this this episode would be unrecognizable in season two. Hmm. And I think it's a very different version of the show than we saw five seasons ago. Yeah. What, um, I guess a few things that I'm thinking of is I want to go off the point of maybe the Orions are the ones who are leading the Orion syndicate, but... You know, it's certainly got plenty of people of other. You know, it's it anybody who wants, <laughs> and not, it, not necessarily anyone who wants to join can be a member. But well, if they're trying to keep it secret, they're doing a real bad job <laughs> by calling it the Orion Syndicate. Yeah, right. Um, although maybe that's part of the panache of it, because you know, if you see an Orion, you know, okay, they're going to be a made man. Yeah, but, you know, if Bilby walked into a place, you wouldn't peg him as anything. That is the problem with um, bite. That is the problem with being bright green. Yeah. <laughs> um, they could just all look like Endorians, like in that TNG episode. Um, well, I'm thinking of the Vorta's line towards the end where he's in a very uh, – he much, very much admires the loyalty that's in – and he says, you know, we have a lot in common. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously the Dominion and members of the or, uh, the – Orion Syndicate are working very well together. We've talked about several, like, oh, the Ferengi would have a very nice place in the Dominion if they went willingly. So obviously the Orion Syndicate has, you know, very smartly looked at what the Dominion is going to do and has made a deal. Um, Right. That said, all of the power in the Dominion is top down. It is always... The, you know, the founders are at the top, and then there's the Vorda, and then there's the Jem'Hadar, and then there's, you know, the red people who do the trading, and then, you know, there's a very strict hierarchy, and whoever, I mean, the people lower on the heart, the people lower on the hierarchy even have genetic programming and societal mm-hmm. conditioning to essentially worship the people on the tier above them. Um, that's not the case with the Orion Syndicate, this, this, this concept of witnessing, um, as we see it, uh, basically, Bilby very briefly says, oh, I, I witnessed for this guy, and that's enough for Ramos. And he says, you know, I, I trust him. The two of them obviously have such a strong uh, concept of tr- – strong relationship of trust between them that, you know, even though Bilby may, you know, be making mistakes, he and Ramos – you know, if if he says something, Ramos knows, all right, you know, you're not going to do this half-assedly. Um, yeah, and most – I think most uh, appropriately to that is is he did not witness for his other two yeah. dudes. You know, and so they were probably like, oh, the resumes got sent to Ramos or, you know, whatever the equivalent – or if the crime equivalent yeah, exactly. of that is. Or, you know, you're temps, you know, or, you know, you're the guy I hang out with, but we're not going to make you a full employee, you know. And, you know, it's it, – yeah, and I, I think that it's – You're hourly, you know, but <laughs> Miles is salaried. Right. We, I got him a nice suit. What I, what I, and a prostitute. I think that what is – what's most sort of, I guess, hard to grapple with with this episode, particularly with, with O'Brien, is that, you know, Bilby's obviously a very sad character, a very tragic character. 
And uh, O'Brien in this episode, again, I think that, you know, it's not a, it's not the strongest O'Brien episode, even though I think the episode itself is very strong, just because we don't see a lot of O'Brien in the episode. He's not playing O'Brien. He's playing a version of O'Brien. And he's also, I think, in a way, you know, at the end of the episode, it it hinges on this idea that O'Brien is sort of getting some Stockholm syndrome or something. And I think, yes, I think he is to some degree. I don't know that he necessarily is saying, I'm in the Orion Syndicate now. I'm never going back to the Federation. But he is. He he likes Bilby. He likes Bilby. I think to some degrees he's naive because he seems to think what he thought. Finds out is that okay? Bilby is is guaranteed to be killed on this mission. It's going to be a failure. And O'Brien wants to save his friend, even though he is somebody who has done some horrible things. He has many very good qualities. You know, Bilby is is noble for his love for his family, for his loyalty towards O'Brien, for things like that. Bilby is. A bad, bad person with many good qualities, and certainly this is Star Trek. It believes that everybody, you know, has dignity and is a person. And so, I guess you know, O'Brien, O'Brien talks about, you know, the the Federation prison in this as well. Right. We have generally come to the opinion that whatever your ideal prison in your head, your ideal reform based humanitarian prison, you know that is going to be run well where all the prisoners are going to be treated humanely yep. and are going to eventually be released and be better productive you know whatever that's what a federation prison is he thinks that oh well bilby will be in a federation prisoner it's prison it's better than being killed he'll do okay he'll be able to reform his life i can still visit him and spend time with him you know we can that's the happy ending and when bilby just very casually points out well they're gonna go after my family like that didn't even cross o'brien's mind right I think. right and, and that's also i mean you know to be clear i think that's also when o'brien you know really goes over to that side and decides that he wants to you know essentially you know help bilby escape even though yeah. bilby doesn't want his help because o'brien has a family and i think yeah. he understands that that protecting instinct yeah 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 and it's I, I, I think that's part of why Bilby asked, you know, do you really have a family and why he is very happy because I think he is understanding that O'Brien was doing this for some many of the right reasons. Yeah. Again, from Bilby's view, O'Brien is in the wrong. He's on the wrong side but still has many good qualities. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I think the other thing too there, of course, is that – this this whole idea of Starfleet intelligence and and I don't which is in both episodes and it's that's starting to be a a theme, isn't it? Yeah, and I I believe that they've mentioned Starfleet intelligence before in the past, yeah. but but we haven't really ever seen a Starfleet intelligence agent or whatever. And so we see one in this episode. He's kind of there. He's, I, he's well, a handler or something. I I like him too, based on. There's that one bit where O'Brien's like, oh, yeah, we went to the track, and he's a little embarrassed, and, you know, the handler, you know, laughs. He's like, oh, I've been undercover before, you know. He he know, and he ends up not reporting all all that happened. He right. Right, you know, because, frankly, frankly, just as Bilby is seeing echoes of his relationship with Ramos in O'Brien, I think his handler is seeing echoes of his own time undercover in O'Brien. He knows what it's he knows that you are going to be meeting some people who, yes, they have done crime. They have done, you know, morally more things that are morally corrupt, but at the same time, 
you can still like them. You can still feel sympathetic towards yeah. them. Yeah. Frankly, he wants to pull O'Brien out at the end, be, you know, partially for his own safety and because he realizes exactly where O'Brien is at that point. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that it's it's very telling that that his handler keeps information back from him, of course, because, yeah. you know, one of the things that we always say about about Star Trek and Deep Space Nine and, and TNG are definitely part of this is that, you know, everyone's operating in good faith and everybody sort of like is in this together. And, you know, what what you say is what you get and all this kind of stuff. And this idea yeah. that someone in Starfleet would lie to O'Brien about this. And he's not, he's not, I mean, well, it's a lie of omission. It's a lie more. of omission. And, and, you know, but the idea that that would not even occur to O'Brien is, yeah. is I think, very, very telling and yeah. very profound because this is O'Brien a little bit kind of understanding more of the both the geopolitical implications of what is going on in this episode and also the ways in which the Federation has to have people like this handler and people like O'Brien on these undercover missions to stop things from happening that would be bad for the Federation. And the the reality of that is dirtier and and much more muddy than i think o'brien has ever really yeah. thought about i don't think i don't get the impression that o'brien is someone that sits around thinking about politics very much <laughs> and, and, and i mean you're talking about why is o'brien on this mission what does o'brien do in his spare time with bashir that's i mean he talks about how he loves challenges in the next episode but they're fighting jerry's in world war Two, and they're kayaking and doing the O'Brien is very lonely because his wife and kid are kids are on Bajor right now. He's not seeing them very often, and this almost seems like a desperate adventure he's doing just to get his mind off of it. But O'Brien is almost as in the in the thick of everything as all the other characters are. Yeah. When when it comes to, when a DS Nine is on the front lines of the wormhole, when a big Dominion event is going to happen, O'Brien will probably have some some tangential relationship to it same things happen to him eventually on the enterprise yeah and even even though there are things i mean the the entire we there's a very brief sex section on ds9 in this episode pretty much it's everybody going where's o'brien everything's broken um yeah which i was going to mention i'm glad you mentioned that because it is the one thing that like aside from the very end of the episode that's the only other time that we see yeah this entire episode which is good because it makes yeah it makes the episode very claustrophobic oh yeah but it also does underscore exactly what o'brien's strengths are yeah and, and why he's missed well I, because everybody's asking, you know, Bashir ends up asking Cisco, and Cisco basically says, "Look, I I can't tell you, but you know, he's O'Brien. He'll figure it. You know, we and we've seen plenty of times that Picard has information that the other characters aren't allowed to have. But for the most part, and especially after the fact, um, because obviously O'Brien has told Bashir what happened after the yeah. after the incident. You know, so he's that information is filtered out, but." I guess O'Brien is used to being being among the real people, quote unquote, in a way. He is he is his the people he's around are the main cast and so they're gonna be the most important people in the galaxy. They're gonna be the people who know they're the adults in the room. And Starfleet intelligence is a little more adult than them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they're realizing some of how I don't know, because Starfleet Intelligence, it seems, has never been around people who have worked in good faith, maybe. 
It's possible. O'Brien was on the Enterprise where no one lied to each other and no one was allowed to argue. And even though things are muddy on DS9, he's still around mostly Federation people or people with Federation sympathies. And someone like the Starfleet intelligence officer has spent a lot of time in places where, you know, if people know you're a Federation an officer, they'll, you'll be shot immediately. Yeah. So yeah. he has a very and different I, view. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the best way that you can see that, especially, you know, here in this episode is, you know, the, the, the Vorta and the Dominion's plan here is essentially to work with the Orion syndicate to, to get some Klingon disruptors, they're going to murder the Klingon ambassador yeah. and make it look like um, another house killed him. And then that house wants to withdraw from the, the they're gonna, Federation yeah. treaty. They're going to put the Klingons for... back in Civil War because if right. you, a season or so ago, the Klingons either were in Civil War or were on the brink of it. And Well, they they withdrew from the Kittimer yeah. Accords like two years ago, so they want to get back to that. and. You know, my point in saying that is, is well, A, it's it's instructive that, you know, while we haven't dealt with the war a lot since the first opening, you know, six episodes of the season, it is still there. Yeah. It's still being threaded through every single episode. We'll see that in Change of Heart. Yeah, even but, this little side adventure is very war-focused. But I think that if this was a, 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 a Starfleet episode and not Starfleet Intelligence, if I can say that— mm. There would be a conversation or a line or a couple lines of dialogue that were saying, well, we won't, we don't want the Klingon ambassador to be murdered because that is bad. But no one says that. It's never even mentioned. It doesn't. You don't get the impression that that O'Brien's handler cares that much if the ambassador's killed or not. It's just a way to make sure that the shit doesn't hit the fan for the Federation. Yeah, he, and that's a profound difference, I think. It's not caring about the um, the ambassador's life for himself. It's not worried about the imp- the effects that it'll have on Kronos, but. They're worried that they're going to lose a major out, a major yeah. military resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that tells you that the, the difference in priorities there and the difference and, in outlook. Well, the way is that Starfleet intelligence has had to think again. It's you don't get to be a. I mean, this is something that real people who go undercover have to, you know, actively deal with. If I remember right, uh, didn't Donnie Brasco come out like around the time this episode aired? Like that that's kind of where I thought that this Maybe, yeah. I, I you know, that that's certainly the kind of story that this is telling, you know. Yeah. And yeah. you know, a lot of you know, again, real life people who work undercover will talk about how, you know, yeah, you can really much you, you, you can like these people. You, you can go, like them, you can lose yourself. You go out to the track, you meet their families, you know, they buy you clothing, you know, that they become your friends, but at the same time you still have to keep that kind of you have to keep you know, you have really have to compartmentalize yeah. your personality in a way. In a way that I don't think O'Brien will ultimately be able to completely do successfully. Yeah. That this yeah. that his handler has and is and has been able to do. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with all of that. And also, frankly, let's face it, the handler is now a handler. Not only has he gotten into that position through his experience, but I don't know how long one can handle staying you know, doing undercover work because after a while it's gonna get to you. Yeah, I don't know how long people generally stay doing undercover work. I don't know. And I mean, some people can stay years. Yeah, and it seems uh, like a way to lose yourself. Mm. And I'm glad they got O'Brien out. Yeah. Well, maybe the last thing to mention before we uh, move on to change of heart is, um, I don't know if you noticed this. You probably didn't because, again, Richard doesn't notice faces. But 
the Vorta in this episode is the same Vorta from One Little Ship. Oh. So just a little. So wait, where was Orion in One Little Ship again? He was on the little ship. Okay. I Because I was th- when when the Vorta came, that actually was a fucking terrifying moment because I'm like, what if it's one of the Vorta who mm. knows? Like, if it was Wei Yoon who right, stopped out, right. he would know O'Brien immediately. You know, it, it's really lucky, frankly, frankly, if O'Brien had not been in the little ship and therefore the Vorta never saw him. Yeah. Things would have got That is true. Yeah, that's very true. And that's probably one of of the reasons why they probably used O'Brien. Well, yeah. And but and let's face that scene. The Vorta is saying, oh, I can tell a traitor. And he picks O'Brien. That wasn't the traitor they were looking for. But he did pick the traitor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. It's very true. Um, And of course, we would be remiss if we did not mention Chester the cat again. Yes. Because, you know, there's not a lot to say about his cat. But uh, it is interesting. I think the episode ends on the right note with O'Brien with Chester yeah. the cat in his quarters alone. Yeah. And just kind of very mixed emotions at that point. Yeah. Uh, one question I did have. So they're looking for the name of this Federation, tra- uh, the double agent. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out to be who was in control of the weather station on Ryza. That was the Worf and Dax episode because they say uh, – because the, he mentions like, oh, yeah, he was paid to make it rain on Ryza and that's what happened in that episode. I, I think so. So does that suggest that that whole thing of, oh, we're here to morally you know, talk about the morals of the Federation? Was that him? Maybe. Was he the double agent uh, and he was doing his whole moral crusade in order as the cover for his... No, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. It's weird because like, if I remember that episode correctly, Worf had to help them do that. So I don't I don't know if it really slots in. Yeah. I, I don't I know. Mean, I, I, I guess you could... I mean, you can make the convoluted argument, especially considering that this is another episode that's not interested in you know, rehashing that, that, you know, the guy who led that ultimately led to it raining on rise. And that right. was the way he did. And he manipulated Worf, but right. I don't know that that's a weird deep cut that I think may suddenly makes that episode a little bit interesting. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go back and watch it again. No, we don't. It's because it's all about Dax and Worf's problems. Uh, well, speaking of Dax and Worf's problems, <laughs> they have some pretty bad ones in change of heart. They must have had a lot of animal budget at this point in the show because we had a cat in the first episode and now we have a lizard and a snake. Well, they actually changed sound stages to be next to the LA Zoo. Oh. No, yeah, I don't know what's going on. There. They just had a lot of animals in these two episodes. I really did like the scene where she's like trying to blow the lizard off. <laughs> This was probably the best Dax and Worf episode we've had, which is not necessarily – which is damning with faint praise in some ways. But that said, it was a good Worf and Dax episode. Yeah, I always feel – it's weird because like I always remember this episode as being like, I don't know, 20 minutes of Dax and Worf in the jungle like crying and <laughs> – I don't know why I think that. I think it's just because it really doesn't. Actually, I like the pacing of this episode a yeah. lot. It, it she doesn't get injured. I think until like thirty or thirty-five minutes in, it doesn't really take up a large part of the episode. It's it, really a, essentially it's an episode again. It's a Worf and Dax episode about their relationship and about 
I think it's in a way trying to answer the question, why these two and yeah. why are they married? And I think it does a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I, I would say that is the case. And I think it's interesting that it's the soup, you know, obviously it starts off as, you know, that you have soup. I made to, today I made a I made a baked potato cheddar soup and a pasta vazul. Mm, I'm hungry. Yeah. Um it's bookended with it, it's 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 interspersed with this you know much lighter story for the most part about Bashir and Miles trying to uh you know beat Quark at this what what's the game? Tombo? Tonga. Tonga. Um I think it's Tongo actually. Tongo. But... Um which gets to this weird place where Bashir is pining over Dax, but I mean, I really liked that. I really like the Quark and Bashir storyline in this episode. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, I think that maybe we'll talk about that first because it does yeah. kind of end halfway through. I mean, one of the things about this in particular is that this isn't really an A story, B story structure that they've done in quite a while. Yeah. This, I actually wrote in my notes like, hey, a B story. Like, yeah. We haven't seen one of these in a while. I mean, And it's, it's one that connects very nicely to the other in a way that I, you know, does yeah. come out of left field, but... Yeah, because it seems a little strange. I mean, um, you know, Ron Moore wrote this episode, and surprise, surprise, it's like a whole Klingon Dax yeah. episode. And what, what he wrote, <laughs> there's this great little thing in, in Memory Alpha about this where he says that the last time he really tried to mix a comedic B story with a really serious A story was um, Life Support when Beryl died. And the B story was um, Ron, no, uh, Nog and Jake going on a double date. And oh, yeah. I remember we talked about that and it was just totally like wildly off and mm-hmm. it was just kind of like, oh my God, Beryl's dying. Why are you being such a Ferengi? We're on a double date. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what is happening? This is really like whiplash. And I think that he does a much better job with it in this episode because essentially what happens is the B story ends at the moment when the A story also stops being fun. Yeah. And, and it, that's it, a good choice. And it ends in a way that's not that fun either. No, it's not. You know, it, it starts. Well, there's a, always, there's always been an undercurrent of definitely with Bashir, yeah. you know, macking on hitting on, well, trying to Mac on Dax for two seasons and then realizing, okay, this is not going to happen. And we but had that what, moment when he was turning into an old man in that yeah. one where, you know, he does, you know, say, and honestly and legitimately, you know, yeah, I used to love her, but you know, we, we've, forged a very strong friendship and i wouldn't give that up and you know that that's the better part and i like that yeah yeah and then of course quark has also had a bit of a crush on dax as well so yeah it's a i think that well i quark quark is able to needle bashir so well about this i think primarily because partly he's telling a bit of a bit of the truth about himself I like moments when we get to see Quark be really hyper competent. Yeah. I think it's, you know, that he is this, you know, becoming this champion Tonga player, I think is, is good. And see that Quark needs to go to the point of he's getting Bashir drunk and getting him to think about his tragic romance loneliness. It, yeah, number one, that suggests that Bashir is playing extremely well. Yes. Because Quark needed to get needed to go outside the game in his strategy to win. Yeah. Um was a very brilliant, you know, move. But also I think Quark has I think Quark has gotten over Dax. He at this point realizes that, you know, ultimately no, he doesn't actually they don't actually he doesn't actually love her. He doesn't want to 
be her girl. He doesn't want to be her boyfriend or anything like that, but he genuinely does enjoy playing Tonga and hanging out. And, you know, she's... He, he, at the end of the day, you know, they are friends, and I think he's happy about that. And Bashir is not at the, you know, he, he, it may not be a thing that he thinks of every day. He may be 95% uh, over her at this point, and genuinely so. And I think, you know, especially based on how O'Brien reacts to it at the end, where he's like, no, you just got totally played. Um, I don't think that's Bashir, where Bashir really is, but obviously Quark knows him well enough to know that to know, yeah. a few drinks and you just make a couple of comments and that that's going to hit the weak spot. Yeah, true. And I mean, I also think that it does speak a lot to Bashir's current mental state as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, we've mentioned before that Bashir doesn't seem to be doing that well mentally yeah. recently. Like he's kind of down and he's depressed and he keeps saying that the war is going to destroy the Federation and... He doesn't seem like his jolly old self. And- I, well, I mean, you know, uh, let, let's let, let's not. Bashir has seen two people on the station that he loved go and get married on him. True. Well, yeah, but O'Brien was already married. The three people. Who else got married? Lita. Oh, Lita, yeah. Right, Remember right. they dated for a while? Oh, yeah. Like, I, yeah, I forgot about Whether that. or not, I don't think anybody, even the two of them, seriously thought that they would make it but at the at the same time Bashir doesn't have a girlfriend now true even yeah. if he and Lita were just having a lot of fun together they're not having fun together anymore that's true yeah and I think that I mean Bashir is I don't know he seems to be kind of stuck I mean he seems to not be yeah. you know because he kind of openly questions well he doesn't kind of he does openly question Bash- uh, uh, O'Brien about what exactly it is that he's doing why he's doing this mm-hmm. and yeah O'Brien's doing it because he's bored like you said when you're talking about honor among thieves O'Brien's family is on Bajor. He's bored. He's not doing anything. He's got a cat now. And which is classic, classic, you know, <laughs> shadowing that that uh, that uh, O'Brien is is not exactly the most un- unlonely person in the world. <laughs> but, well, you know, I like cats. They're fine. Now, I, I, again, I think Bashir is mostly OK, but there is a part of him that's gone right now. And he very much wants the war to be gone and things back to normal. He's yeah. not he, – O'Brien is not in a – is never going to get in a position where he's going to have a very dark place. There are too many people around him who are going to pull him out of that. Uh, but at the same – Which I find – it, you know, it is interesting to me that, that Bashir seems to be pulling back a lot from Garrick, for example, because – yeah. You know, their sort of classic lunch scenes were a staple of the show for a while, and we haven't had one in quite a while. And, you know, that that could be for various reasons. Part of it was they were, you know, both in a prison camp together, and it was not exactly a good time. <laughs> uh, I mean, we haven't seen Garrick in a few weeks as well. You know, that could just as much have to do with Andrew Robinson's schedule and where, you know, can we fit in that scene? Well, maybe not. We have too much to talk about, but... That yeah. said, it is a good question. What is Garrick up to these days? I don't know. I don't know what Garrick is up to. We'll find out soon, I think. Oh, good. He's not having lunch with Bashir, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And at the end He's of the day... He's just sewing a million rhinestones onto something. <laughs> I'm going to make the best wedding dress. I don't care who's getting married. <laughs> well, maybe actually the last time we saw him, was it you were cordially invited? It can't have been. I don't. What did he do when you, you are cordially invited? I he mean, was going to make the wedding dress for okay. them. At the very opening scene with Zial. Oh, yeah. Or not with Zial. Wait. Wait. Who was with him? Somebody was with him. 
And kept rejecting the wedding dress. Yeah. That was y'all, wasn't it? She was dead by then. Yeah, so why was he... Here's a little fun fact. I actually haven't watched any of this season. I'm just going <laughs> by my half room. But why would he have made a wedding dress for Zial? She wasn't getting married to anybody. No, when... Oh, no, it was when... Oh, in the in the, in the the fifth season finale. With When Lita, Lita. and Rom yes. were getting married. That's what it was. Okay. That's right, because Rom kept wanting to have these skimpy dresses. Yeah, 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 Okay. Yeah, okay. Sorry, I was misremembering that. Too many weddings. I don't know. I don't straight people. You're all interchangeable to me. I don't know what the hell you're doing or what you look like or who you are. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day though, it's, it's a, it's a nice little B plot. And I think it, it, you know, it works because it does a nice job of the, the Worf and Dax story, even though they're going off to meet this, this Cardassian double agent, Lacerin, and it's very serious. And they're kind of like, I don't want to do this. And we're talking about our honeymoon, you know? Um, I don't know why I'm doing a sling blade thing there, <laughs> but, and then they, you know, go into the storyline with, with Bashir and O'Brien. It's very funny. They're trying to learn to play Tongo and you know all that kind of stuff. And then in that scene we talked about with, with Quark and Bashir, it turns a corner and it gets very maudlin. Yeah. And that's when they, they transition fully over into it being the Worf and Dax show for the last 15 minutes or so. And that's when that storyline gets very dark and maudlin. I mean, they, they, there is a larger point that we can extrapolate from the tong- the lesson that we've learned from Tonga. Don't I'm get at- married? Well, besides that, um, and I said lesson that we can learn, not something we already knew. But um, I- I'm having a hard time seeing it through to the end. But Tonga, it's said many times, it's not just luck, it's strategy. And then the strategy that ultimately wins for Quark is even going beyond the game and using some, you know, deeper intelligence into... And I I guess maybe this is echoing and complicating the point from what was the episode where Bashir was dealing with the other genetically altered people statistical probabilities which goes at the end and they look they crunch the numbers and they see that dominion will always outrank them every single time you know when it comes to just sheer numbers yeah. and resources and firepower and all of that and ultimately Cisco says that's bullshit you know and this is Star Trek we'll find a way and so I guess maybe it's just highlighting that point that it doesn't really matter raw numbers, raw resources. That's helpful, sure, but at the end of the day there is it you know, it is really cleverness and and I guess this isn't exactly bluffing. I mean, bluffing is a metaphor that was very much used in the original series. It's, and it's fucking with his head. Yeah. Is what it's doing. Well, I guess that's it. Kirk bluffs. Uh, everybody on the Enterprise uh, in in TNG plays poker, which is a game of bluffing. Yeah. But yeah. Quark will manipulate and lie yeah. and, yeah. you know, use psychology and all these you know, all much darker shit in order to get what he wants yeah because what he wants is he wants to win yeah well and i think i mean let's let's talk about about Worf and dax then because it, again like i said before i think this episode does uh, go a long way towards maybe convincing us that the dax yeah. and Worf relationship is something worthwhile of the show and worthwhile of these characters i think the scene when they're in their room at night and yeah. they're getting ready and you know, they're talking about work and then Worf prays for a minute and then they have sex. Work and sex are what Dax and Worf have in common. And this, you know, we I guess part of me has been wondering, you know, because they're both very good at their jobs. They're both apparently very good at the sex. And 
Is that enough to make a relationship? Well, apparently for these two, it is becoming enough. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, what what I like about about that scene, particularly in the beginning is, you know, and again, when they're in the runabout, they're talking about their honeymoon and they're doing all this kind of, they're almost treating their, their little adventure here as a little bit of a camping trip at yeah. first. And Well, they they even joke at, you know, this is their, they, we got our adventure honeymoon at right. one point, they said. And, you know, then it becomes very serious, of course, but... It's a day in the life. It's establishing them as a couple that I don't think the show has done a real good job yes. of doing before. And it, it makes sense. They seem to fit together well they in feel, this episode. They feel very natural. I mean, the two of them have very good chemistry in this episode as far you know, as far as their acting is concerned. It's because they were both drunk. Well. But then I think that where, where the episode really does slot in nicely again to what you were talking about with, with, uh, with the Tonga game is that in the same way that – Tonga is a game of, of of strategy. It's also a game of luck. It's also a game of getting in your, the player's head mm-hmm. and anything, anything goes. And that, you know, yes, on paper, Bashir can be a very good Tonga player, but Quark knows how to manipulate him in such a yeah. way to win. And in frankly, a, in, in a very Ferengi way, he does say that, you know, as a human, you're not going to really play it very well. Right. Dax may be able to get into that, you know, the cutthroat mindset for the game that, you know, you need to go. That's yeah. why... Quark enjoys playing with her. Yeah. But but in the same way that, you know, it's lots in with the idea from statistical probabilities that, you know, you can look at everything on paper and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is going to happen. But in the same way, the love for Dax that Worf has directly causes yeah. a serious problem for the Federation. And you know, let's be clear. I mean, they were going to get some pretty good intel from this oh, guy yeah. if he was telling the truth. He said he knew how many changelings were in the Alpha Quadrant, where they were, and what they were doing. That seems like it would be pretty cool for the Federation to know. And as far as the episode is concerned, he's not lying. He may be an right. asshole, but he's not lying. He's not lying. And I mean, you know, I'd probably be an asshole too if I was a you know mid-level Cardassian functionary that was being hounded by the Dominion. But yeah, who knew his, that his hours were numbered? Right. And and so if you look at this and you say, OK, well, obviously the Federation and, you know, it, 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 what Deep Space, what Deep Space Nine is really good at a lot of times is, is inverting the standard Star Trek storytelling tropes that we've gotten uh-huh. so used to. If this is a TNG episode. Worf would have gone, gotten Lasarin, come back, gotten Dax. Everything would have been fine. This is DS9. He can't yeah. do that. And so they have to make a real choice in the moment about what they're going to do. Are they going to help the Federation or are they, is he going to help his wife? And he chooses to help yeah. his wife. That is the variable that you can't control for. You know, it, at the during when they do talk to Lasarian and he's, I mean, he's, he signs off basically saying, look, I'm putting my trust in a Klingon, you know, implying that that's the stupidest thing one can do. One can never yeah. count on a Klingon and they leave that scene. And frankly, we leave that scene saying, well, it's Worf. Duty will not, you know, he will never waver from his duty. And especially when he's leaving Dax and saying, you know, look, I have to do. And she's all, I understand. I understand. Like, that's Worf. He's going to get the mission done. But Lucerne was kind of right to not trust this particular Klingon. He, he didn't. He was going by the wrong reasons. He was going through simple prejudice. He wasn't thinking that oh because Klingons you know will take fan you know their right, wife before right. you know, not that was but he unfortunately did turn out to be right and I don't know you talk about how TNG would have done this one of the things I was thinking about is how a show now would have done it like 
shows now, especially with the way they kills char- they kill characters off, can be really fucking sadistic. Yeah, and yeah. And I could picture a twenty you know two thousands era version of this show where. Not only does Lasarin die, but Dax dies too. I mean, Dax yeah. has the Dax has dying written into her character in a way. I mean, a show now would create a character with a symbiont just to kill off the host and have another actor, yeah. and so you can keep the same character. Um, the Doctor Who effect, exactly, and which frankly does let me be worried about Dax in a way that maybe mm-hmm. I wouldn't be wor- you know if it had been Worf who had been injured well they're not going to kill off Worf right. but and I'm fairly sure well they're not going to kill off you know Terry Farrell's character right. you know they're not going to fire the actress but maybe they would yeah i mean certainly they could i mean yes. you know i again, think again a that, show nowadays would have done that already yeah yeah and i think that that's you know the show I think you're right in a way that it is the show still showing its age in a, in a way. But at the same time, this is the right choice. Like, well, it's the right choice, and it's also it's the point of the episode. Yes. Is that Worf is making a decision in that moment yes. to save his wife as opposed to, to do his duty in Starfleet. And, yeah. you know, if Worf had decided in that moment to go back and rescue Dax and she had already been dead, yeah. like— you know, that would have made his choice meaningless and it also would have caused irreparable damage to his career. Yeah. So what's he really getting out of that? I think it's a little too dark for this show. Yes. And I also think it's a little too dark for Star Trek in general to do that. You know, yeah. when, when Worf does make that decision in that very dramatic shot with yeah. the camera spinning around and the heartbeat getting louder and louder to go back and rescue Dax, you know in that moment she's going to be okay because the the decision is made the the decision has to be paid off in some way, and you just you know you just kind of know that he's going to go back and rescue her, and everything's yeah. going to be fine. So, by the way, awesome makeup work on her because they, she gets pale and green and just sickly looking, and it it was I mean the, those scenes where she's you know starting to die are actually fairly hard to watch they they are they actually did a really good job with it and i think that this is some of the best acting terry farrell oh, yeah. has done as well and as we've you know noticed she's done some very good acting through the throughout maybe not in the first couple seasons we were really unfair of the acting on this she was not great in the first couple no seasons. but but again she figured out the character she figured out the character she may yeah. have been the kind of it may have taken her a little longer than other you know people did but you know at the same time i think yeah. 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 I would agree with that. I guess one of the assertions in this episode that I'm questioning that I'd like to get your take on is this notion that Dax cannot accept change in a lot of ways. And, you know, she laughs when Worf says that because, yeah. you know, I've lived, have, I've had all these hosts, you know, I've lived, you know, I've had all these careers. Like, what do you, what do you mean? I can't accept change. And he points out, well, you brush your hair the same way every time you eat the same thing for breakfast. Um, the episode where her earlier hosts, you know, come back. And I mean, the, the sec, the section with Kira, where she's saying, oh, well, I hold my hands like this and mm-hmm. you do that now. I mean, she's picked up certain habits over lifetimes. I mean, Brushing her hair 500 strokes may have been something that, uh, you know, the, the who who was the one? Could I'm, have been Emony. It could have been. I'm thinking of the one that Cork was uh, oh, trying yeah. to be like, you know, 
I don't remember the name. He's serving her. He's serving her tea or something like that. Like I could picture that be, you know, but you know, it does seem to make sense. Yeah. These are habits that are reinforced over lifetimes. You know, she's going, every single incarnation is going to hold her arms behind her back because she's had, you know, a half dozen incarnations do that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's partly that. I think it's just partly habit. It's something that yeah. you know, Worf is not recognizing that this is, you know, cuz the thing about Jedzia Dax, of course, is that Dax is a person, Jedzia was a yes. person, and Jedzia Dax is a combined entity. And so like the personality is going to be a little different than what Jedzia was like or what Dax would be like if he was just floating around in that pool on yeah. Trill. And so yeah. I think that's part of it. I also think that you could, you know, make the argument that Part of keeping those habits around is a way for the symbiont to exert some sort of continuity yeah. in their life as well. And, and and I think also you could make the argument that maybe it was Jadzia that liked to I was gonna say brush her hair five hundred times a day. Well, we don't know. that's the kind of thing that seems out of an etiquette or a grooming book from the nineteen fifties. You know, you must chew your food x number of times, kind of a thing. Right. And right. What we know about Jadzia pre. Uh, uh, joining you know, the first time that she, she says the first time that she took the you know took the internship you know tried to tried out for it she was basically rejected for being too boring she was <laughs> doing ev- but that version of Jadzia was doing every single thing perfectly and right and what you should be and you know if the book says you have to you know you need to brush your hair this much to keep it healthy and you know shiny and light that's what I'm going to do and you know, certainly she makes some changes in her behavior in order to get the right to join, and certainly right. she gets because I can't really see, for example, Curzon being that, you know, set in his ways. So yeah, maybe it is a Jadzia thing that she has certain thing. You know, the Dax parts of Jadzia might be the more curious parts and the more vibrant parts, frankly, and that's you know that was what a what enabled Jadzia to literally go outside herself and experience more of the world and loosen up a little yeah bit. yeah i think that's that's probably accurate mm-hmm. i mean we'll never really know no course, and but... you know Jadzio and dax will never really know either and to a degree it doesn't really matter yeah but yeah 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 i think it's a good episode and i think we haven't really even dealt with the fact that of course at the end of the episode you get this pretty striking scene between mm. Cisco and Worf where Cisco essentially says, you fucked up, dude. Because and, he did. Well, he did. He did. And this very serious, uh, you know, consequence, which is essentially that, hey, you're never going to get your own ship. And then also, so all this discussion about, you know, Captain Worf show, it's like, hey, guys, remember that? <laughs> that there was, you know, Michael Doran keeps saying he wants to do a Captain Worf show. <laughs> it's just, you know. But I don't want a Captain Worf show because I don't like Worf. Um, I mean, maybe you could do it for the Klingon Empire, but yeah, yeah, he's not going to. Right. And and what what tempers that, and I think what makes Cisco such a good captain and Avery Brooks such a good actor, and, and even mm. that little scene, because you know Avery Brooks isn't in either of these episodes very much, but you remember each scene he's in. Mm. Uh, he's walking that fine line between I have to professionally berate you and i have to tell you that you you fucked up and there are serious consequences here and oh by the way i would have done the same thing so i think that's a way to to assuage Worf's guilt over this in a way too but in a way which you can picture picard giving that when picard gives that same kind of speech because he has 
done that a couple of times. At the end of the day, it feels like dad saying, you know, no, no, you know, I know you did the wrong thing for your job, but you made the right moral choice. And that at the end of the day was the best thing. I mean, Cisco says, like, as your commanding officer, uh, you did the wrong thing. I would have done the same for Jennifer. And he he doesn't say I mean, I think it's very telling that he doesn't say, as your friend or as a man who was married, yeah. you did the right. He never says that Worf did the right thing because I think even Cisco knowing that, Cisco knowing that he would go back and he would fuck up the mission for his wife, he still knows that that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And. Well, it's the wrong thing to do in one sense well, and the right thing to do in another sense. Uh, uh, Star Trek has made us deal with the phrase, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. This is a very literal sense in which he sells out, you know, he he saves his wife over getting information that would save millions of lives. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Spock would not have done that. Spock would not have done that. Or would he? We don't know. Depends on who it was. Would he have saved Kirk? Probably. Now, Kirk would have saved both of them. Yeah. Or Spock would have saved both of them. That's how good Spock is. Well, Star Trek. He would have had that jet pack. Would have been no problem. Original series didn't believe in the no-win scenario. Star Trek Two made it made us realize that sometimes no-win scenarios happen. Star Trek Three made us realize that we can go back from them. Um, I don't think Next Generation was really about no-win scenarios, but this one's about clusterfucks. Yeah, it is. It is. It's about making hard choices, and I think both those ep- yeah. both these episodes really talk, really speak to that. I also have to say, I wonder if Lasarin had not been quite such an asshole on the phone, if Worf would have maybe been a little, you know, because you know, going through his mind, he's think he's not thinking, you know. I have the choice between my wife and millions of people. He's thinking I have the choice to save my wife or this fucking asshole. Yeah, yeah, it is true. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good. It's a it's, good question. I again, these were both very subtle episodes in in their ways, but I, I and that's something that's very clear in again that clearing scene when he throws throws the the machete thing. Yeah, he's, that is what's in his head at that point. He is just I don't know. It was very. I was. Both of these episodes, I wasn't sure about. I have to say, I wasn't sure how they'd go, but I was really happy this week. Good. Well, if you were also really happy or unhappy, you can leave us. Or a- you had no feelings whatsoever. <laughs> in which case, what's it like to be a robot or a Vulcan? Vulcans have feelings. They very. Right. We've talked about this. We have an entire Patreon special on it. Leave the Patreon for a minute. They have to leave a comment. Trekaboutshow.com if you would like to leave a comment. Patreon.com slash Trekaboutshow is where you can go to give us a little bit of monetary support if you feel so inclined, including for our other podcast, Tuning In, we have a very important announcement. We are starting the next show in the Tuning In Experience, and I think we'll start calling it the Tuning In Experience. Why not? Okay. Uh, We're going to be talking about the show, the little show, Showtime show from a few years ago. Just said show a lot. The United States of Terra, which is the three-season dramedy about a woman with multiple personality, now called dissociative identity disorder. It is very good, and we hope that you listen to it. Watch along. It's on Netflix, and enjoy it. Maybe it's a comma. 
Yes. Social media, we are on it. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Truck About Show. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review for Truck About Show. It is greatly helpful and makes us feel really good. Yeah, anytime we get a review, Eric texts me, and it's nice. Yeah, yeah, I do that because I know that Richard will be excited. Yay! And Richard and, needs joy in his life. And usually I'm at work and very busy, and I get like, what the fuck is he telling me? So I have to sneak into the bathroom to check my phone, and and then the soup doesn't get made. Yeah, I need to go have dinner. Well, Wait, Do you want some pasta vizul? No, I don't want that. Came out very nicely. Well, before I do that, I'll tell you what we're doing next week. We're talking about the DS9 episodes, Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. That's the title. And Inquisition. 